You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics, this is the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. If you've been uh, following along with our, with our messages over the past few weeks, uh, you know that we've been talking about, uh, we've been going through a series entitled Mere Christianity, taken from the classic book written by uh, C.S. Lewis by the, of the same name. And as we're discussing mere Christianity, we are talking about the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. There are some things on which we have the power and the ability to disagree and still be within the realm of Christianity, still be within the perimeters of the Christian doctrine, the Christian religion. However, there are some beliefs that are that are so critical that are so fundamental that to discredit those doctrines would be to discredit Christianity in general. And it's a dangerous precedent doing that. Uh, Obviously, we we want to be found to be orthodox in our theology, to be right in our theology, especially as it pertains to the the, the the most important, important doctrines of the faith, otherwise called primary doctrines. We've been going through this series. Our first message was on the existence of God. In that, in that message, we discussed uh, how God is, uh, is, he is one God. There is no other. We also discussed how God is transcendent uh, beyond the scope of creation. He's not bound by creation, but he is also very personal working within creation and thereby with that information, we know that there are miracles that take place and there is divine revelation that takes place as well. In our second message, we discussed the identity of Jesus. And we noted that Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man. To deny either of those aspects of the identity of Jesus is to deny Jesus his identity entirely. 
and thereby you're found outside the scope of Christianity. Our last message, we discussed the incarnation and the essential nature of the virgin birth as it pertains to God coming on in the world and taking on flesh. We also noted the absolute essential and understanding that Christ died for our sins, that he was sinless, he was perfect, that he died for our sins so that we could have eternal life in him. Today, we're going to take a look at another aspect of the life of Jesus. We're taking a look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to find in this message, first delivered at Huntsville Baptist Church by yours truly, Brian Chilton, that it is absolutely essential to understand that Jesus literally and bodily rose from the dead on that first Easter Sunday morning. We're going to talk about five different evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this message, by the same name, Evidences for the Resurrection. We hope that you'll join us as we read from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And so we ask that you join us now for this message already in progress. I think the two worst days in the afternoon was right after Valentine's and after Halloween. They were amped up. (laughs) We are uh, going through a uh, series we're going through a series entitled Mere Christianity, taken from uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, classic book by the same name. And we're looking at the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And already we've uh, seen thus far three fundamentals that are absolutely imperative, absolutely integral to the Christian faith. There are many things upon which we can, you know, we can disagree and still be within the umbrella of Christianity. But uh, these things are uncompromisable. They, they, they have to be set. They're, they're absolutely essential to build a Christian worldview. We've already seen the, in the first message that God is exclusive, meaning he's the only one. That he is transcendent, meaning that he's not, he's not bound by space and time. He's not bound by the creation. He's greater than the creation because he brought creation forth. But he's also very personal in the fact that he works within creation. And that means that he does miracles. It means that he reveals himself to us. And that means that he, he has a personal relationship with those of us in and through Christ Jesus. We also in the second message learned that Jesus is 100% God and 100% human in his identity. You have to have both of those in order to understand who Jesus is. In our last message, we talked about how the incarnation was absolutely essential because of Jesus' death upon the cross, as it was sufficient so that the world could be saved, but efficient that only those who respond to the gospel message would be saved. And so today we want to take this a step farther. We're, We're building a Christian worldview. We're looking at the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And so today we want to talk about, and if you follow me on social media, you know I was already amped up about this come Monday. We're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And beloved, I'm going to tell you, this is my favorite topic of all time. This was, a, this was the very thing that whenever I left the ministry for seven years, uh, you know, I had doubts about the historical validity of the, of the Gospels. But boy, I'm going to tell you, when I saw the mounted evidence that exists for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, It's unlike anything else in history, in ancient history. And so today we're going to take a look at a lengthy passage of Scripture. We're going to look at John chapter 20, verses 1 through 20. And y'all pray for me that my my voice will hold out. 
John chapter 20, verses 1 through 20, and we're also going to read verses 24 through 30. So we want to invite everyone, if you would, to please stand in honor of God's precious holy word, the reading and hearing of God's precious holy word, that is. <coughs> Excuse me. The Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 20, and verses 24 through 30. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the, tomb, the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and this is, we know, in the Gospel of John, referencing John the Apostle, the writer of the fourth Gospel. He said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, being John, and were going to the tomb. When they both, uh, so they both ran together, and the other disciple, being John, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been wrapped around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together on a place by itself. Then the other disciple, being John, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. He saw the body had gone, was gone, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and he believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb, weeping. As she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will, I will take him away. And Jesus said, I believe compassionately yet sternly, Mary, <laughs> it's me, you know, Mary, it's me. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, in Aramaic, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And that same day at evening, beginning the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, they were, they were, uh, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now let's go on down to verse 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his, in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look in my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. 
And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And who are those? You and I. We haven't seen the risen Jesus. I mean, he could show up at any time. I mean, it's within his power. He could show up at any time. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Dear kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the words of truth found in your word. And we thank you so much, Lord, for the truth that, that we're not just talking about something that we wish to be true, or not something that we just hope to be true. We're talking about something the greatest, something which is the greatest historical event in all of history, which is reality, something that is true. We thank you so much for loving us, Lord, that you came to die for us, but also that you came to defeat death. And we thank you so much for your resurrection. Because it's because of your resurrection that we have hope and we have joy in knowing that truly death has died. Lord, I just ask, Lord, this morning that you would just simply allow me to say the words that need to be spoken and hold back any words that don't need to be spoken. And in and through it all, we ask that you would open our eyes that we would see, our ears that we would hear, and our hearts that we would apply these truths and be better for it. For it's in Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Well, how many of you in here love baseball? Anybody love baseball? Baseball is a great sport. Well, there's a story, uh, a story is told of two buddies by the name of Ray and Ed. Ray and Ed were just tremendous baseball fans. They loved baseball better than eating, and they loved eating too. Uh, so, so, but they made a pact with one another. They said, if one of us goes before the other, we want that person to come back and tell the other person whether or not there's baseball in heaven. I want to know if there's baseball in heaven. And just a few months later, Ray had passed away, just suddenly, unexpected. And Ray, uh, after passing, you know, a few days had passed after his passing, and Ed was lying there, and he saw light shining, and he saw, he saw his friend Ray uh, standing before him at the foot of his bed. And he said, Ray... Is that you? And Ray says, well, Ed, of course it's me. We made that pact, and the Lord allowed me to come back and to, to tell you whether or not there's baseball in heaven. Well, Ed, waiting on bated breath, says, well, tell me, Ray, is there baseball in heaven? And Ray says, well, Ed, I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news related to that fact. The good news is, yes, there is baseball in heaven, but the bad news is that you're starting tomorrow night as pitcher. So <laughs> get ready, <laughs> you know. We know when we talk about death, a lot of times we, we say this, you know, we, we consider it bad news that a person's dying, that a person's passing, and we use words to, to coat the reality of death, you know, like passed away and things like that, to take away the sting. But you know, in reality, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death has lost its sting. Because in fact, death is no more. Death has in fact died. And if we understand the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can take a look at a life with a fresh new glow. We can even look at death, and especially those we've lost who've preceded us in death, and know 
beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're in the presence of God and that in the end, they're going to be resurrected just as Jesus was resurrected. That's what the Bible means when it talks about him being the first fruits of the resurrection. That just as Jesus was resurrected, so shall we be resurrected. And isn't that wonderful news? Isn't that wonderful news that we will experience, we will taste the same type of resurrection that Jesus tasted today? But, <clears throat> excuse me, what type of evidence do we have <clears throat> for this event? Well, I've, I've proposed to you today that in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, we can five, find five evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And let me just say, there are many, many more that we could discuss we're not going to be able to go in depth with all the things that's going on here. But I think in the Gospel of John, we see at least five evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And number one, we see Jesus' resurrection was evident by the empty tomb. In verses 1 through 10, we see that the women approach the tomb. They come to the, bo- they come to the tomb, they come to the body of Jesus... And the reason they're doing this is if you follow the gospel narratives, you see that when Jesus' death happened right before the Passover. And what they would normally do is they would really take most of the afternoon to prepare the body. But they only had about an hour or so to get the body prepared. So they had to speed through it because Passover started at 6 p.m. that evening, that Friday evening. And so they had to hurry through the process. So the women came early Sunday morning. We're ready to, 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 to finish out the anointing of Jesus' body. When they come to the tomb, the tomb which they would have known and seen that it was empty. The body of Jesus was not there. They saw angels, which should be evidence enough you know, to, to most people. But they saw the linen cloths lying there. And they came back to tell the disciples what had happened. Uh, they saw the angels. They went to, to tell the disciples what happened. But one thing is for sure, one thing that's very clear... The tomb was empty. The tomb was found empty. Now, for us to understand this, we have to look at a couple of things. First of all, why did Joseph of Arimathea lend out his tomb? I mean, why, you know, why would you lend your tomb out to somebody? I mean, it makes no sense. Why would you do that? Well, it's because in ancient Israel, they had a practice called second burial. And what would take place is... Most every family in and around Jerusalem had some form of a, of a rock-hewn uh, cave cut out in the rock. And what they would do is they would wrap the body of your dearly beloved in linen cloths after, right after they died. And they would prepare them with all of these uh, oils and uh, spices and things of this nature. And they would place the body in, on this rock slab in the tomb. And then they would wait until after a year for the decaying process to take place... And then they would come back and they would get the linen cloths, take the bones out of the linen cloths, and put it in a common burial box, which was called an ossuary. Okay, and most every family had an ossuary. And so, in fact, I think if you you follow archaeology, you'll see that they've actually found the uh, burial box of James, the brother of Jesus, has his inscription on there, and it's a phenomenal find. But that's the reason that, that Joseph would even blend out his tomb in the first place. And the thing about it is, is that in ancient times they find that not everybody could afford having a big rock placed in front of the tomb. That was a sign of someone who was very wealthy, which is something else we have to understand. Some people today, you'll hear, will make the claim, well, maybe they just went to the wrong tomb. With this being Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, he was a very prominent man, a very, a very famous man. Not only would the Christians have known where the tomb was, 
the Romans would have known where the tomb was and the Jewish authorities would have known where the tomb was. So don't you think that if they had gone to the wrong tomb, the Roman authorities would quickly expose the body and said, hey, look, they had it all wrong. But no body was ever found in Jesus' tomb. The tomb was found empty, beloved. And that's a wonderful news that we have. It's a transforming uh, truth that we find that the tomb was found empty. Now, many people ask, do we know where the tomb is today? Yeah. In fact, we've known for thousands of years where the tomb was. If you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you will see a tomb within this uh, ornate church that's been cut out of the rock. And in fact, there are several different evidences that prove that this was, in fact, the tomb of Jesus. Recently, uh, not long ago, they took the marble slab off the bedding where Jesus' body is said to have lied, and they were looking inside of this, and what they found was absolutely phenomenal. They found evidence that the tomb had not been moved in 2,000 years. They also found evidence uh, that, this, that this place that was said to be where the place where Jesus' body lie had not been touched. It had it, it, it found all the hallmarks of a, of a tomb that you would find in the first century. In fact, the resident archaeologist at National Geographic, and I understand if National Geographic, if they can find something against Christianity, they will. This is what he said, and I quote, Frederick Hybert, the resident uh, archaeologist in charge, of the, or not in charge, but who was uh, writing for National Geographic, said the following. He says, I'm absolutely amazed. My knees are shaking a little bit because I wasn't expecting this. We can't say 100%, but it appears to be visible proof that the location of the tomb has not shifted through time, something that scientists and historians have wondered for decades, end of quote. Beloved, I just want to tell you the great truth still stands. If you go to the tomb of Buddha, you go to the tomb of any other religious figure in history, you'll find the bones of that person in that tomb. You go to the tomb of Jesus, the same truth applies today as it did 2,000 years ago. He is not there. He is risen just as he said he was going to, beloved. And the empty tomb stands verifying this event of history that Jesus has in fact risen from the dead and is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Number two, we see Jesus' resurrection was evident by the testimony of women. This is amazing, ladies. I think you're going to get a real treat out of this. The testimony of women. In verses 11 through 18, who does Jesus first appear to? Who is it? Mary. Not only Mary, Mary Magdalene, you know, and she appears to have kind of a former reputation. We don't know exactly what it was, but she kind of appears to have a reputation. She's the very first one to see Jesus alive from the tomb, alive from the grave. And in fact, if you look at the other Gospels, you see that she is accompanied by Joanna, Mary the mother of James in Luke 24.10, Salome in Mark 16.1, and other women who accompanied her to the tomb. <clears throat> now ladies, I don't like telling you this, but this is, this is just history, okay? So don't throw any stones at me, alright? In ancient times... The testimony of women was not, was, was not held in high regard. And in fact, uh, Jewish, the Jewish culture uplifted women a lot more than other, other cultures did. But in most cultures in ancient times, they said in a court of law, you had to have the testimony of two women to, to equal that of one man. And in many courts, especially in Greek, Greece and Rome, they would not even allow the testimony of any woman whatsoever. 
In Greece and Rome, in fact, it was so bad for women living in that day and time that the testimony, uh, that the, the, the whole identity of a woman, I'm not making this up, was seen as only slightly greater than a head of cattle. In fact, the woman was seen to be the property of the husband. And if something happened to the woman, they had to pay reparations to the husband. It was that bad, ladies. So if you're making up a story in first century, the last person you would have to see, to see as the hero of your story would be a woman, not only just any woman, but a woman who had had a reputation. <laughs> if you're making up this story, that's the last person you would ever see as being the first witness of the resurrection of Jesus. What does this tell us? It tells us a couple of things. It tells us, <laughs> you just don't make this stuff up, that it's absolutely historical in nature. You're not going to say something like that if it wasn't true. And in fact, historians call this an embarrassment factor because in ancient times, this would have been an embarrassing fact to be promoting along. But yet you see it in all four Gospels that the first person to see Jesus alive was who? Who? Mary! Not only does it tell us that, ladies, but it tells us something even more. It, you know, a lot of times people today, especially you hear people on television, they want to say that, that Christians are misogynistic. They want to say that the Bible is anti-woman. That's not what I find in Jesus, amen? What I find in Jesus Christ is he elevates women to a standard never before seen in ancient history. And if you take a look at what Paul writes, he says quite clearly that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Ladies, amen? I, that's, that's weak, amen? Now, let's, now guys, let's be honest about something. If it were not for the ladies, would anything get done in church? No. I didn't expect Grayson to be the loudest on that one. I, th I, think, I think we may have revealed something at our home that we didn't want to reveal there, but... I <laughs> But amen, I mean, listen, I mean, if it were not for the ladies of the church, nothing would get done, would it? I mean, the ladies are really, a lot of times, let's just be honest, just call a spade a spade. The ladies of the church are a lot of times the glue that holds the church together. And that's a shame for us guys. Guys, we got to step it up, amen? Yeah, amen. <laughs> Shout it out. I mean, we got to step it up. But nothing's changed in 2,000 years. Except for, except for uh, John the Apostle, there's evidence that John the Apostle was there at the cross. The ladies stayed by Jesus through the time of crucifixion. They were bold, they were brazen, they didn't leave his side. And where were the disciples? They had all run away except for John the Apostle. And that's probably the reason why Jesus appointed John the Apostle to be the caretaker of his mother uh, after, after, after he ascended into heaven. The fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, that women are elevated to a new standard in Christ Jesus, and that's something that we all should celebrate. The resurrection of Christ demonstrates that to be true. Number three, the Jesus' resurrection is evident by multiple eyewitnesses. Now, let me just, let me just tell you, and we're looking here at uh, John chapter 20, 19 and 20, but let's go over to uh, 1 Corinthians. We need to read this right quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses uh, 3 through 6, or actually, we'll just go ahead and go on down to uh, verse 9. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses uh, 3 and following. I want you to, for you to, to be able to see this, you need to read the first few words. He says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Historically speaking, this is huge. Because Paul received this information that he's passing along to the Corinthians three to five years after the resurrection of Christ had taken place. This is as early as you can get, folks, especially in ancient history. But what does he record? He says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, which is Aramaic for Peter, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me, being Paul, also one as of being born out of due time. Now, just how many people saw Jesus alive after his death? Was it just a handful of people? Unfortunately, a lot of uh, movies based upon the life of Jesus get this all wrong. Because you'll see them showing just a handful of people seeing Jesus here and there. But that's not what we find in Scripture. I mean, just how many people did see Jesus alive from the dead? That's the question. You know, I had something happen uh, several years ago. Actually, before I even went into the ministry, uh, you know, I was at a place and I, had a, I heard something about a, a friend of mine that I, that, I, that I thought just didn't make any sense. One person was telling me something about this friend of mine, and I, I'm not going to say who it is or what was said or anything like that. But I had a difficult time believing that. Then someone else came and told me the same thing about this person. And then a third person came. And then, then finally about, about 20 people had told me the same thing. And one guy, he never says anything about anybody. Never really hardly says anything to begin with. But, but he told me the same thing. So after that amount of testimony, I had no choice but to believe that there might be a little bit of truth in what I was hearing, something I didn't really want to hear. How many people saw Jesus alive? Well, the most conservative estimate is that we see the 11 disciples seeing Jesus alive. The the two men on the road of Emmaus saw Jesus alive. The uh, guards saw Jesus, which uh, most most likely was anywhere between 9 to 16 guards that were placed in front. A guard was a military unit, uh, anywhere between 9 to 16 people placed in front of the tomb. So we'll just say 9. He appeared to over 500 brothers at the same time. He appeared to James and he appeared to Paul. Folks, that comes about 530 people. But now here's here's the kicker. In ancient times, you see this with the feeding of the 5,000. In ancient times, they only counted men in public forums. In the feeding of the 5,000, you actually probably have 20,000 people because the wives were there and the average household had about six kids. Six kids, I'm not making that up. So you're looking at about 20,000 people who were fed by Jesus. If that number holds true, then you could probably say that there were 2,000 people who saw Jesus alive at one time and add that to the 530, that's 2,530 people who saw the same person over the course of 40 days, at the same, or many of them seeing him at the same time. Now folks, here's the question. If one person says they saw Jesus alive from the grave, you may say, yeah, whatever. But what if 2,530 people said they saw the same thing over the course of 40 days? Would that might maybe change our minds about that? 
The multiple eyewitnesses are incredible. And not only that, many of these guys died for what they knew to be true, being crucified, burned alive, and so on and so forth. So the fact of the matter is we have an incredible amount of evidence to show that people saw Jesus alive from the dead. Not just one or two people, but a masses of number of people uh, that saw Jesus alive from the grave. And folks, that is absolutely tremendous That's absolutely tremendous that we have that amount of people seeing Jesus alive from the dead. Number four, Jesus' resurrection was evident also by the changed lives. Now we go back to verses 24 through 29 and we read the story of Thomas. We give Thomas a hard time. I mean, he's even been given the name Doubting Thomas. You know, I really don't like that phrase, but that's what we call Thomas. But let's be honest. If you were in Thomas' shoes... You had seen the crucifixion, you had seen the body of Christ, you had seen all this take place, and then all of a sudden, some of your friends saw, said, you know, we saw Jesus the other day, you know, you know, he was eating some fish. You know, what do you think about that? What would you have said? What have you been drinking? <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> well, we, would have, we wouldn't have believed it, would we? We would not have believed it. But the thing about it is, is that Thomas's life was transformed. He said he proclaimed when he saw the hands and feet of Jesus, the side of Jesus, my Lord and my God. He believed in Christ as being the divine Son of God who had risen, who had risen physically, literally, from the dead. Thomas is even known to have died a martyr's death in 72 AD. He took the gospel message to India. He was speared by a Hindu priest who was aggravated at the advances that the gospel message had made in India. And in fact, many Indians today have still been transformed by the ministry of Thomas where he established seven churches in India and gave his life preaching that he saw Jesus alive from the dead. Cowardly Peter, who denied Jesus three times, is strong historical evidence suggesting that he was crucified upside down around 64 AD because he didn't deem himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner that Jesus had been. He was crucified upside down. We see James. We see uh, James was a brother of Jesus. In John chapter 7, we find that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him during the earthly ministry. I mean, what if you had a brother that was saying that he was the son of God and, and doing all these different things, you know. And even if it were true, I mean, man, that'd be some tough things. To, that'd be a tough brother to have there, you know, being, having a perfect brother like that. But James was a skeptic throughout the ministry of Jesus, as was Jude. But James, he saw the risen Jesus. We're told this in 1 Corinthians 15. And you know what happened? He believed in Jesus as the Son of God. He even became the leader of the Jerusalem church. And we even have a book written by him, the earliest book in the Bible, in fact, the book of James written by the brother of Jesus. Talk about a transformation. That was an amazing transformation. But what about Paul? Paul was a persecutor. Read the book of Acts. He was holding the coats of those who, who stoned the first martyr in history, the first Christian martyr in history, which is Stephen. He held the coats so that they could kill Stephen. He hated Christians. He wanted Christians wiped out. He was chasing Christians out of towns and out of communities. But how did this Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, How did he become the greatest missionary of all time of the church? Because he seen the risen Jesus alive from the dead. 
And by seeing the risen Jesus, his life was transformed, his pathway was changed, and he received Christ as his Lord and Savior. In fact, there's coming a story out. This, I was very influenced by this book uh, called The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel is a man who uh, graduated Yale Law School, and he was the uh, legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. His wife was an agnostic, and uh, just so happened to be they both were against Christianity. They couldn't stand religion. They couldn't even stand the notion of God. But his wife came to faith in Christ, and he noticed a transformation in her life. And he thought, i got to get her out of this. I don't know what's going on with her. I didn't marry a Christian. I married someone who was against Christ. And so he attended, uh, he attended a few church services with his wife, trying to get her out of this, what he thought was a cult. And so, uh, and so she challenged him. She said, you know, Lee, you know, you've had legal training. Why don't you use your training to see whether or not these gospels stand, see whether or not Christianity stands. And over the course of two years, he investigated the claims of Christianity. And what he found absolutely amazed him. It came to the point in time in his words where he said, it would take more faith for me not to believe than it would for me to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So he said, you know, I, I, I'm going to receive Christ. So he came to Christ and he said, you know, I think my wife wanna, would want to hear about this. So he told her and she says, well, I told you, you old son of a Baptist. I told you it was true. Why didn't you listen to me? Well, ladies and gentlemen, coming out later this year, I believe it's um, April, if I'm not mistaken, of this year, they're going to have a movie out uh, on, on this very story, and I highly encourage you to go take a look at it. If there's anything like his book, it'll be absolutely phenomenal, called The Case, of, Case for Christ. So lives are being changed in ancient times. Lives are being changed today, all because the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. Last but certainly not least, Jesus' resurrection was evident by post-resurrection miracles. Now, you see this in verses uh, 30 through 31. You also see this later in chapter 21. How many fishermen do we have here today? How many people love to fish? Oh, I know there's got to be more than that. <laughs> I saw Dan's hand. That was the only one I saw. Well, there's a few people love to fish in here. Now, now you, you know that if a fisherman catches a good catch of fish, then he's going to want to tell people about it, right? Well, now, how would you feel, though, if you're having a bad day by the lake or by the pond or on the river, or on the ocean, wherever you fish, and you're fishing your heart out, and you can't catch anything, and lo and behold, someone comes by and says, well, why don't you try this other way? I have a feeling you probably won't have nice thoughts come to your mind after all that happens. But when Jesus first called the, the uh, disciples to ministry, that's what happened. They were out fishing with nets. They couldn't catch anything. So Jesus comes by the shore and says, why don't you throw it out on the other side? It's like, well, we already tried that. We'll do it again. So they did, and they had more fish than they could even haul in. Well, after the resurrection, they go up to Galilee, as Jesus told them to, and they're out, as good fishermen do, they're fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And they're not catching anything. And lo and behold, the resurrected Jesus comes to the shore, and he says, well, why don't you try throwing it out on the other side? And they're like, again, really? Somebody else is going to do this to us, really? So they said, okay, fine. So they throw it out. And John, being the good fisherman he, he is, even recorded that they caught, down to the detail, 153 fish that day. It's a miracle performed by Jesus. In the book of Acts, we see that Luke records, he notes that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering, and by many infallible proofs, appeared to them during 40 days in speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus appeared to them, 
He was fine-tuning their theology before he ascended into heaven. But that word infallible proofs is a word from logic. It's the only time it's used in the Old Test- I mean, the New Testament. It's called tekmerios, and it's a technical term which means demonstrative proof, evidence that he was in fact risen from the dead. I believe that Jesus went back in the miracle business. I really do. I believe he went back healing people. I believe he went back uh, doing just all the things he had done before. But now he is risen from the dead. And he showed time and time and time again that he had defeated death. That he had risen from the dead. That everything had changed because he had defeated the greatest enemy of mankind outside of the devil himself. Death itself. You know... Yesterday, we went to the circus. Last night, we went to the circus. And we saw some incredible things there. We saw a lady being shot out of a cannon going across the entire Colosseum. And I thought to myself, you can't pay me enough money to do that. (laughs) We, We also saw this guy. Now, I love weightlifting, but we saw this guy lift 550 pounds with his teeth. I hate to be that guy's dentist, wouldn't you? Uh, you know, 550 pounds with his teeth. And, you know, you, if you had told me that a guy could do that, I said, there's no way. You know, but we saw it and several other people saw it. It's the same way with the resurrection. People from all across the world, people from all across the area saw Jesus alive and he proved time and time and time again that he had risen from the dead. Over 40 days, or, or 40 days we should say, that he had risen from the dead. Let me close with this. <coughs> a lot of times we can become super, super, skeptical, super skeptical. In fact, there was a, there's a story of a woman who was deeply suspicious. She, she looked under every corner. She looked under every leaf. She thought, you know, she was just deeply suspicious. So there was a UPS guy who came and delivered a package to her. He knocked on her door. She came to the door, and she had one of these little peepholes. I don't think you see them on a lot of doors anymore. One of those little peepholes. You can see out that hole to see who's there. And she looked out that peephole and she says, who is it? She said, ma'am, I, he said, ma'am, I'm the UPS driver. I have a package here for you. She's looking through this peephole and says, well, I don't see a package. He says, ma'am, it's heavy. She said, I don't see a package. I'm not opening my door. So he holds up this package and says, ma'am, I have to have a signature for this package. Will you please open the door and sign off for this package? So he finally puts it down. She looks at him, she says, looks him up and down and says, well, I don't see any truck. She, he steps to the side and says, ma'am, look, there's a brown truck with gold letters, U-P-S. I have a package. I have my uniform. Will you please open the door? So This thing's getting heavy now. I've got other deliveries to make. Will you please open the door and sign off for this package? A few moments go by. She looks at him. Well, let me see some identification. By this time, this man had had it. He says, ma'am, don't you realize that if I wanted to, I could get in your front door without your permission? She said, what do you mean by that? How dare you, young man, say such a thing? He says, ma'am, I could have gotten in at any point in time because you left your keys in your front door. They're right here. Will you please open the door and sign off for this package? You know, a lot of times it's that way. We become super skeptical of everything. You know, in fact, many atheists today have become the point that they're so skeptical that they don't even believe that you can even know that you exist. Frederick Nietzsche was that way. He was the one who inspired Adolf Hitler to do the things that he did. There are many individuals who are so suspicious of so many things that they are willing even to deny the truth when the evidence is in favor of something miraculous. Beloved, the truth of the matter is, in ancient history, there's just as much if not more history to prove the resurrection of Jesus 
as of any event in ancient history. And that, for that fact, beloved, we have a hope not just because we wish it to be true. We have a hope because it is true. And because we can grasp and wrap our minds around that central truth that Jesus really has defeated death, that God really has come in flesh and, and taken away our sins, that he really has come on earth and he really has done these things that we find in the blessed words of truth found in God's word. Then, beloved, we can face each day with the fresh new vigor and a fresh new hope that we never have otherwise. We don't serve a dead prophet. We don't serve a dead moral teacher. We serve a living Christ. Amen? We serve a living Christ. And because of that truth, we should all understand that death has died and life reigns forevermore. So, beloved, we should have the enthusiasm to go forth and tell other people about this resurrected Christ as he is the whole reason why any of us have hope in this world today. And as bad as the world is, getting, bad, getting worse all the time, we have the living hope in Christ Jesus because he has defeated death, because he has defeated hell, and because he has defeated the grave. Dear kind of gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the fact that we can celebrate this blessed hope that we have in our Savior, Christ Jesus, and that through his resurrection we have the greatest Valentine's Day present of all, that love has reigned supreme, that death has died, and life lives forevermore in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here today who's never received you as their Lord and Savior, we invite you, Lord, we just ask you to work on their heart and lead them down to this altar today receive you as their Lord and Savior. Maybe there's someone here who'd like to rededicate their life, or maybe there's someone here who would like to come and join the ministry of Huntsville Baptist Church. Whatever you're saying and doing in their heart and life, we just ask, Lord, that you would have your will and your way. For it's in Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen and amen. Would you please stand as we sing our final selection? The Bellator Christie Podcast is a production of bellatorchristie.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights are reserved. 
The views expressed by guests on the podcast are of those expressing them and may not represent those of the host Bellator Christi Ministries or its affiliates. The theme played on the podcast is the song Epic and is produced royalty-free by Bensound Studios, found at bensound.com. Visit bellatorchristi.com and subscribe by entering your email to receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox absolutely free. This podcast can also be found on several podcatchers, including iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. We thank you for joining us today. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you next time as we enter into the arena of ideas.